Hi, my name's Phil Davies and you'll also be listening to Chris Morgan on the School Sports Podcast. The views displayed in today's episode are our own views and not representative of the schools that we work at. Please enjoy the rest of the pod. Good morning and welcome to episode 7 of the School Sports Podcast with me, Phil Davies, and my co-host Chris Morgan. Had a bit of a half-term hiatus so it's nice to be back in your podcast and back in your ears. Um, Morgs, how's your half term been? Any any good stories? Um, yeah, very good, Phil. I think um, uh, so. I've had a golf lesson, remodelled the swing somewhat, um, and uh, and been in been in the cricket nets. Um, and we sort of opened up the cricket nets at school, and uh, and it's great to see kids, you know, back in school. It sort of felt felt normal um, to some degree. Um, and yeah, so just working on my cricket, working on my golf. Yeah, mate, good, good to hear about the golf. I had, a, I had a lesson as well, and he's completely ruined me. I went out on the course and was duffing everything. Tried to change too much too early, and yeah, put me off a little bit of golf. But uh, we'll see this afternoon. I'm out on the course this afternoon. Um, really interesting topic this week, and we are going to our unsung heroes of our games program, and we're looking at the, the focus on the schoolmaster in school sports. So that's our P non-special so non-specialist PE teachers who lead and coach a team in sport and we're uh, really um, lucky to be joined by uh, Paddy Sadler um, who's an English teacher at Stewards Academy in Harlow and uh, Jess Watson Reynolds um, who's a geography teacher at Tunbridge. Morning guys how are we doing? Morning good thank you. Morning yeah good thank you. Guys how's how's your half term been how's your experiences um, of this kind of different teaching style remote world been? It's funny because it doesn't, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. Um, so I'm on maternity leave at the moment, but half term didn't really feel like a thing. It was just kind of like an endless bit of lockdown kind of continuing on. So so for me, it hasn't felt vastly different. It hasn't felt sort of like a bit of a break, but um, I'm not sure, Paddy, how do you feel about it? Um, well, I managed to catch up with Morgs um, from a safe two metre distance during half term. So that was obviously <laughs> a, a bit of a bonus. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think similar to Jess, it's sort of, when you're not going into work every day, it doesn't kind of seem to change that much. Um, but I mean, the weather being great and as Morgs mentioned, um, cricket sort of starting to um, sort of fire up a little bit. It's been good. Yeah. So, Paddy, a little bit of your background. You're a former cricket master at Tunbridge School with Chris and Jess. Um, tell us about your role at the moment, mate, please. Uh, so I worked um, for four years at Tunbridge, um, first of all as a graduate assistant, which did have a real big emphasis on sport, um, and then as a teacher, um, and also, as you mentioned, as master in charge of cricket. Um, and then at the beginning of last year, I moved to my current job, which was um, a job I got through Teach First, um, which obviously going into work in a very different kind of school. Um, so yeah, so I think it's a there are obviously similarities between the two jobs, but there's also vast differences as well. And I think it's quite an interesting reflection sometimes to think about sort of obviously the different merits of the two different systems and the different way that the different schools are set up. Yeah, and hopefully we'll we'll definitely get into some of that at a later date. And um, Jess, what about you? What's what's your route into into teaching? And, and tell us about your te- experiences of uh, teaching games at Tunbridge. Um, so I've been at Tunbridge uh, four years now and before that I was at an all-girls academy for a year doing my NQT year and I guess the big contrast I noticed when I started at Tunbridge was that I, I didn't coach any sport previously just mainly teaching geography with a bit of leisure and tourism and then when I came to Tunbridge um, 
the teaching fantastic but I felt like I was almost 50% teaching and 50% sport I think maybe be the sport element having not had that before it took up a great deal of time and I didn't realize just how much kind of you know you invest it um in the in the students as well as kind of um the timetable as well Tuesday Thursday afternoons Saturday afternoons but actually I've, I've really enjoyed the kind of the variety and the ability to get to know the boys outside the classroom um and also kind of extending myself and putting myself in a position where I'm challenging myself and learning new things as well as as well as the students as well. Really yeah I mean some of the most important things there from that we would look for from a, a schoolmaster as such teaching games. Um, to both of you then how important is, is the coaching games element obviously being supposedly secondary to to what you're essentially employed to do teach geography and teach English. Paddy what do you think about that? Um, so yeah, I think I think what Jeff says is a, is a really interesting point, and I think I've obviously found the almost the reverse of that, having gone from a job where I did coach lots of sport, um, sort of all through the year, to one where I now um, don't. Um, and I think the balance can be, as Jeff says, kind of fifty fifty at times, or sort of actually, given that the kids are so passionate about their sport so much of the time, almost feel as if that is your major role because that's where you're kind of thinking about pupil well-being a lot and um, pupil enjoyment and sort of how you're managing those relationships when obviously there's things like team selections and people wanting to be in a higher team or wanting to win their fixture on a Saturday or, or whatever else. Um, I think the relationships thing is really important um, and I think that is something which I certainly really appreciated when I was working at Tunbridge was that ability to forge different types of relationship with the pupils from the teacher pupil relationship in the classroom to then the sports coach um sort of player relationship and that is obviously subtly different um but yeah i think it's it's about striking a balance between those two different between those two different roles and perhaps at times it can become a little bit overbearing if, if it's the teaching you want to focus on but i guess that's quite an individual individual thing as well and jess any kind of similar echoes or sentiments there obviously um, geography teacher first and foremost and you talked about the, the split of time how important is, is the games coaching for your sanity or for your career it's been it's been so nice actually to you know if you've got a full-on sort of um day in the classroom to then suddenly be down on the sports pitch doing something different um and interacting with, and the boys would have obviously just had lessons and then being out of fresh air i think it's so worthwhile and um, like i was saying for well-being etc um for me it's been really interesting kind of uh, I, I coach rugby and uh, hockey and the rugby pitch actually for a few of the boys um, well first of all having to do sports in that first term everyone mainly does rugby and actually what's quite what's great is that it kind of goes down all the way from A's to G's you've got a big sort of breadth there and we and we kind of take into account that actually a lot of these boys may not have previously played a great deal of rugby or had um, a, a great experience of it and kind of trying to transform that and make them a bit more passionate about being in a team and learning skills and actually almost starting from scratch and that's been so enjoyable to kind of watch the boys grow and to actually be like you need to you should care about being on the F team this is a big kind of you know experience and creating a kind of um, team spirit I guess. Jess um, just as sort of as, as somebody with a sort of overarching role um, as director of sport how how much support do you want uh, and is sort of ideal I'm always very conscious of you know, trying to support people, but also not trying to dictate what they do. Um, and I just wondered if you could sort of talk about that, that sort of dynamic. Absolutely. Um, in my first year here, I was coaching the under 16 Ds um, and they were the lowest team for, for that year group. 
And the support that I had, having not previously coached rugby before, I had um, an ex-PE uh, teacher who was visiting to come in and help coach. And I sort of learned a great deal from him. So for me, that was really sort of a confidence boost. And I wasn't expected to referee straight away for, for that for that first term, which was fantastic. So I could kind of watch and learn. Um, so for me, that was perfect. I had kind of the support there, but I was also free to develop those training sessions in, in a way that I wanted to. Um, and then latterly, in the last three years, I've been on the sort of the, the lowest cohort of uh, the, the year nine. So ESFGs and uh, what we call the academy and um um the 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 guy who runs that um he is very efficient very organized and will suggest things for sessions and then we can kind of develop and take it or leave it depending on how whether we want to play each other in terms of e's versus f's or whether we develop our own training sessions and having built a bit of experience now and also kind of going away and looking at training sessions and as well um material that the uh, the master in charge of rugby provides it, you have a bit of something you can run with um, and you can do the same thing, but you can also, you're given scope to develop that, which, which is fantastic. And the school are very good at kind of uh, promoting um, courses to go on. So uh, I've been on a refereeing course. There's also sort of coaching opportunities and getting people from outside of school. So I think it's, it, you're right, it's absolutely that balance of you want to be sort of led. And I think we definitely are. And there are, are things there that kind of help support, but equally you're kind of given the autonomy to run the training sessions that you want to do, which is, which is fantastic. So that's kind of a perfect balance for me. Interesting. Um, I came out of that question quite well then, um, but I wasn't wasn't setting you up to to, to say that. But I think um, I think you know just the the sheer time that you guys spend on sport. You know, it can be as you said, it could be half of your week is spent on sport. And I think it's really important that people aren't left to in the sort of ethos isn't sink or swim because fundamentally the kids and the staff lose lose with that mentality. So I think it is really important that schools invest in support in staff. Morgs, one for you then. Um, obviously, being director of sport and having uh, worked with with both Jess and Paddy, and um, you can use other people as an example for this. What what do you look for in a good schoolmaster of, of games then? Basically, Jess and Paddy. That's what. <laughs> that um, team, knock it out of the park. There we go, guys. Um, well, it's, Phil's a great, um, great question. Um, I think, uh, and I'm not saying it because she's on the, on this call, but Jess displays a lot of the qualities. I think you want people who um, want to have a go and want to get better. Uh, and you know, it's terribly cliched, isn't it? So sort of that growth mindset. But I think if if a sports coach was you know, if you were asked um, as a PE teacher, you've got to teach a bit of geography next year, you'd learn up, you'd, you'd read up on it, and you because otherwise the kids are going to suffer. And I think it's the same uh, same in sport. If you're if you're asked to coach a sport, although you may not have d done it for a long period of time, there's an element of sort of self-respect um, that you want to be pretty good at it. So you're gonna you're gonna put in the time and the effort. So I think all it is is an enthusiasm to get better and an enthusiasm to make sure that the kids really have a really positive experience. I think there's nothing worse than the sort of PE teacher or schoolmaster that turns up there and doesn't really want to be there because um, the kids are going to miss out. I think you just want somebody who wants to be there and wants to make sure that the kids have a great experience. And that's all you can ask for, I think, fundamentally. Yeah, too true. Absolutely. And we, I'm sure we've all got pictures in mind of, of that um, latter uh, teacher that you've described who turns up, maybe just lets the boys play a game and then dips off as soon as the session's finished and doesn't take a great interest in. I mean, I mean, Phil, I think, I think you know, the, the idea of having a just having a game, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't, you know, it depends on the motivation levels of your group. Um, 
it, 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 sport plays, you know, yes, there are elements of the year you want to have, um, you want kids to develop certain skills and, uh, and abilities, but also you need to understand how it fits into the wider context of the school. It might, you know, the kids might be under a terribly stressful period with exams looming and actually sport plays a really big factor in terms of stress release. So I, I've got no qualms with the, the teacher that wants to just have a game. And well, kids love just have it again. Um, but I think it's about wanting to be there because I think enthusiasm is, is infectious. And I think if you turn up with this sort of approach or attitude that you don't want to be there, I think this, the kids soon pick up on that. And I think, you know, they, they'll, um, they'll feel exactly the same way. So I think you just want somebody, uh, what's that film, Kes? You know, actually just have a bit of banter, you know, a bit of banter with the kids, a bit of ribbon. I think that's... that. So I think that's genius. Without the bullying. bullying. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, taking part and all that. Um, Paddy, you've you've obviously now experienced it from the other side of the fence. Um, What's the kind of expectation on you now as as an English teacher in in a state school in terms of your sporting provision now? Um, So, to be honest, there isn't really any expectation at all. Um, I mean, we do have, the school I work at has a fantastic extracurricular um, provision um, with sport for boys and girls all the way through um, the 11 to 16 school um, and a variety of different sports across the different um, terms or half terms from football, rugby, netball, basketball, athletics, a little bit of cricket in the summer, rounders. Um, so there is a sporting provision um, but the majority of that is taken by um, so the sort of specialist PE department. Um, it's something which as I look forward in my career and as I sort of start to think about um, now I've got a little bit more experience and maybe more a little bit, a little bit more established sorry, in that job, um, it's something I'd be interested in trying to explore and get involved in because um, for all the reasons that we've mentioned. Um, but yeah, it, it's a little bit harder for academic staff to get involved because the timetables aren't just quite um, set up for it in that same way. And that- yeah, I mean, it leads me quite nicely on to my, my next question about what, what the kind of biggest challenges you face um, as, as a schoolmaster coach and obviously balancing your time between the classroom and the games field. What, what are the kind of key challenges you might experience? Jess, any thoughts? Um, a couple of challenges in terms of when you're saying time, um, you're organi- you spend quite a lot of time organising your team um, and you have to kind of liaise with the coaches, especially if, if boys are injured and they drop out last minute. Um, how you go about dealing with that and the email chain that goes on to before a Saturday fixture. Um, but developing good relationships with coaches and opening that communication makes it a lot easier. I'd say the biggest challenge for me personally would be the idea of refereeing or umpiring. Um, I find it um, quite daunting being in front of that many um, that many students and then parents as well the expectation that they might have a greater knowledge than you on certain things particularly if it's a key um, law in rugby um, I think also particularly with rugby when it's just you refereeing by yourself with uh, 30 boys on the pitch the injury element of it as well um, making sure you're playing a safe game and a fair game and also deciding um, making the call on, on what laws you're going to pull them up on because you still want to 
maintain sort of like a continuity of play, uh, but also so you don't want to be blowing up the whole time, but also you want to make sure that it's balanced on both sides. Um, so that judgment as well, I've, I've found quite challenging um, in the past. Um, hockey is a little bit easier in a sense that it's, it's quite clear sometimes because of the non-contact element as to when a, a, an infringement has been in place. But you've also got your other umpire that you can liaise with and say, did you catch that? Um, whereas very much on the rugby pitch, you kind of feel like you're, you're, you're on your own a little bit there. So you kind of think, oh, do I pull that back and playing advantage as well? That kind of judgment that's been sort of challenging for me on, on a personal level, I think. Um, uh, both of you, um, uh, we'll go with, we'll start with Paddy. I'm just, one of the sort of key reasons that schools um, have um, their teachers sort of, it, it, lots of independent schools have their teachers um, coaching sport is that they feel it really strengthens relationships. So Paddy, now in your experience where you're not coaching sport, do you find that is a challenge in terms of developing relationships with the kids? Do you find that the PE teachers do have the strongest relationships? Um, yeah, so can you see a difference in the sort of relationship you have with the kids as a result of not coaching them sport? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think in particular, your point about whether the PE teachers have the strongest relationships with the kids is actually not something I'd necessarily thought about, but um, is something which is perhaps true. Um, I think, yeah, it's obviously different um, because, as we would all know, the relationship and the sort of atmosphere in a classroom is always going to have to be different to the relationship that you have on a football field or a rugby field because you have a certain amount of content to talk through you're going to be asking them to do silent work rather than sort of running around playing football or rugby or having a net with their mates or whatever it is. So there is a difference. I think personally, um, I would still say that I build a lot of my relationships with the pupils through that common interest of sport, even though I don't necessarily coach it. Sort of a certain, certainly with certain pupils who that would be particularly applicable for. I think that's something which, whether it be talking about the football they've played at the weekend or the football I've played at the weekend or, or sort of that kind of common interest, I think is something I definitely still explore. But, but yeah, I think there is, a, there is definitely a difference. And I would say just generally the difference, one of the major differences is the opportunity to build those relationships. Because if you contrast it with Tunbridge, where you would have my normal week at Tunbridge, I would spend a couple of evenings a week in the boarding house. I'd spend four sports sessions a week I would spend a couple of lunch times a week in the boarding house and therefore you just do have that wider range of opportunities to get to know the pupils and then maybe they see you or perhaps even try to manipulate you in a slightly different way on the basis that they feel that they have that sort of good relationship with you. Suppose we're talking about the young man and, and woman who really likes sport. Do you think it can be detrimental to relationships, Paddy, in terms of, you know, you, you might be seen as, oh, I, I thought he was um, really passionate about his English, but actually he's just another sort of jock who loves his football. I don't mean jock as in Scottish either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... So I can't, I can't imagine many people on the podcast can hear a Scottish accent, so that's fine. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, another sort of sporty jock, or if you have to drop somebody, uh, you know, does that, that relationship, is it then damaged in the classroom? I mean, can it be detrimental? Yeah, I mean, certainly... Um... 
it's something I've probably always been quite conscious of is not being is in my sort of academic life, whether that be a university, whether that be teaching, I've always been slightly conscious of not being pigeonholed just as someone, however true it probably actually is, just as someone that loves football, loves cricket, and that's about it. Um, I always sort of try to offer more than that, I guess. But um, yeah, I think the, it can be detrimental to relationships. You're right. Because if I look back at my time at Tunbridge, sometimes you would have to only take, if you were doing an A team, you could only take 12 players or 11 players, whatever sport it was. Um, and even actually when I was doing sort of 14 Bs, 15 Bs, 15 Ds rugby, like whatever level it is, the, the boys want to be in the higher team. Um, they don't want they want to be in the D's rather than the E's or the B's rather than the C's or, or whatever it is so yeah I guess that's just where it comes to managing relationships and almost teaching young people to deal with decisions deal with setbacks deal with deal with highs and lows which is something which I think sport is really good for and at sometimes it's sort of a relatively low stakes environment um, to sort of teach you those lessons Jess, what, it, what, what have you found in terms of sort of enhancing relationships? I suppose uh, the other sort of dynamic for you is teaching as a, as a lady in, a, in an old boys school. Um, just wondered how you, you found, found that. When, when I first started at Tunbridge, I felt that the boys were just really quiet. Now, whether that was because I was new or female or um, whether just being really respectful, and that's generally how they start off with a lot of staff anyway, I just remember thinking, I need to foster some kind of relationship here, some kind of rapport. And I found that a lot of them were interested in sport, and I hadn't really kept up with things like the Premier League recently and stuff. So I was like, okay, well, how am I going to kind of get to know them a bit more and kind of uh, build some sort of dialogue? And actually, when they realised that I was coaching rugby and hockey, we just asked each other about how the matches went at the weekend or what that team was like. Um, you know, how are the under 40 nests shaping up for this week, miss? And, you know, we talked through different things and it became a kind of a contact point really. Um, and a few years ago, um, I did a, a master's dissertation looking at sort of the role of a female teacher in an all boys school. And one of the things that came up was contribution. So no matter who you are, as long as you're contributing in, in um, elements of the school, particularly sporting life, and the boys see a visual presence, they kind of automatically have this kind of respect for you or um, willingness to say that, you know, to interact and know that you're kind of giving your all in different elements. And um, sport for me was a great way to kind of get to know the boys, both their interests and also outside the classroom. Um, and it didn't matter that I wasn't up to date on certain scores. And we ha had other conversations, not just about sport, obviously, but it definitely was a great starting point for me, um, particularly kind of getting to, getting to build relationships with them. Can I just jump in again really quickly and build on something that Jess said there? I think I hadn't really considered that, but the idea, especially at Tunbridge, is pretty much the first question you can ask any pupil is what sport are you playing this term? Have you got a fixture on Saturday? And then it's a question that they can ask you straight back as well. So I think that is a really beneficial thing because I'm just thinking back now to the number of conversations that I've had about sort of the 14 C's or the 15 B's or the first 50 or whoever it is. It's a, it's a common point of um, reference to pretty much any staff member and pretty much any pupil in the school. And I think that's a really healthy um, thing. Can I just say something in terms of, um, I just think of a moment the other day, the other day, uh, back in the Michaelmas term, um, in terms of fostering positive relationships, it's also um, the, the things you notice about the students, but on the sports field, but also off the sports field. But there was one moment I can remember, and I kind of said it quite flippantly, I was looking at, we were trying to work, work out which teams the boys are going to go into, it's quite early on in the term. And I said, I said to one boy um, who wasn't particularly engaged or interested, he started sort of saying, all oh, right, you, you mark that guy, you mark that guy, I'll go here. And I was like, great leadership. 
And I kind of just flipped, and you sort of saw him like light up that I'd noticed or someone had noticed that, you know, he was demonstrating those skills. And then a week later, uh, a fixture, um, his dad came up to me and said, um, you know, thank you for saying that to my son. Um, and so actually just little things like that can end up having like massive ramifications in, in, in a good way. Um, so I was just like, wow, this is that's so rewarding. I'm so glad I mentioned that to him. Yes, I've got to be really careful not to not to offend you. Um, but I, I just sort of, you probably, would you agree that you're not, you weren't a rugby expert coming to Tunbridge? What, what are you talking about, Morgs? You know, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, she probably knew more than me. <laughs> <laughs> no, so my, my background is netball and a bit of hockey. And I, the, the rugby experience that I had prior to coming to Tunbridge was at university, they were quite good at having different sevens tournaments. So football sevens, rugby sevens, hockey sevens. And I got into rugby that way. So we played in a sort of a social league um, annually on a, a sort of Maybank holiday. Um, and se sevens rugby, I got to grips with like sort of the basic rules, but the scrum was a new entity to me, learning all the positions. And yeah, no, I was not an expert uh, by any means. Good, okay. I can expand on my question now. I just sort of wonder, my experience has been sometimes that um, boys, uh, largely boys, my own experience, boys in the lower teams actually feel very threatened by having a, a, a seemingly expert uh, coach them. And I think they find that quite intimidating. And I think it's somebody who can possibly relate to the boys, the challenges that the boys face a bit more and they feel less threatened and, and, and more on a sort of par. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thinking about the nines when they come in, and like I said to you before, about not necessarily having a great deal of rugby experience. Um, yeah, I definitely feel I can relate to them. So I'm try trying to inspire enthusiasm in the sport. And also, um, when it comes to like learning something that you haven't come across before, often you're sometimes a better teacher for the things that you, you've just learned and you're kind of thinking, oh, well, I struggled with where that position was going or, or that particular drill. So let me just make sure I'm really confident and then teaching it to the boys. They're like, right, you might get stuck on this bit. So we're just going to hone on this. So not assuming that they'll pick up. So starting from scratch and not assuming that they'll just pick up things straight away. Um, and I can relate to, you know, having not not being a rugby expert i can relate to like the frustrations they might have about certain things or having to having to get in the mud and having to tackle like the nerve i used to be so scared of in rugby sevens i was often on the wing so i didn't often i didn't have to execute tackles that much and i didn't and i occasionally got tackled but you know you kind of just embrace it but i wasn't kind of the instigator of that so i can appreciate the boys a bit nervous when they come on to do that Top draw, top draw, great experiences there. Lovely, lovely to hear about that, Jess. A um, couple of final questions then. Um, Paddy, Jess, what would be your advice to new teachers moving into sports coaching? So you know, um, your, your job as a teacher moving into the, onto the games field for the first time, potentially. Paddy, do you want yeah, to start? Yeah, so I think a really important thing is actually just to, to, first of all, to throw yourself into it. I think we've mentioned that all the way through this, is that that's a really important um element I think if I think back to my first day at Tunbridge I sort of coached a rugby session without really having much experience in the game and I think what I would advise people to do is to sort of draw on their own strengths and their own personality and what they do as much as possible so I think I was quite fortunate in the sense that I'd played a lot of cricket I'd sort of played a bit of football I coached a bit of football and cricket as well so I did have some of those skills and I think as a teacher you obviously do have that ability to work with young people and to talk to young people and to hopefully motivate young people. Um, so yeah, I think just throw yourself into it and to try to put forward as much of yourself and your personality in how you do it as possible. 
Jess, do you want to do an add to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say number one, enthusiasm. So giving it a go and also um, that the boys can see it, or the students can see that, that if you're enthused, enthused about it, then they kind of pick up on that. And, and secondly, a bit like preparing for a lesson, just trying to do a little bit of reading around if you're unsure of a certain drill, having a couple of drills in your back pocket. So if you think, oh, our training sessions, you know, ended a little bit early, let's have something to keep them going. And it doesn't have to be specifically related to that sport. At the time, it could be, um, in, especially at my level anyway, encouraging hand-eye coordination or just practicing passes or something like that that but feeling confident enough to deliver that or to to have a little bit of knowledge a little bit of forethought about what you might do if you're put in that situation you're kind of on the spot guys phil, phil i think you know teachers are coming at it from a uh have they have a big advantage they understand um young people and they understand how to get the best out of them they understand sort of you know fostering good relationships and they also have a really good grasp of differentiation and you know trying to make sure that that everybody can get something out of the lesson or the or the session and i think if you stick to those sort of fundamentals then you, you won't go far on perspective i'm sure warren gatland in rugby might be able to do more but that that isn't solely what it's about too right absolutely spot on there um Guys, just before we go on to our quick fire round, just want you to tell us about your favourite experiences coaching sport in schools. Jess, do you want to go first? Ooh, um, favourite experiences? Um, Touring. <laughs> what was that? Tour, tour, obviously, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I managed to go on that. Um, not sure how, but um, eventually, like, there was a space on the rugby tour and it came down to the under 14 Fs after going through all the teams that no one else was free and available to go last minute. So, another rugby tour, which was fant a fantastic experience. I learned a great deal and actually, it was really useful. Not, um, I'm not a rugby specialist, so to have someone who would happily sort of film um, the, the different types of play, et cetera, and also just be a different part there. Any any kind of issues with boys, there was one boy who didn't have his passport, so we just sort that out. So I, I felt like I could be of use there, which was great. Um, I particularly enjoyed, so I think it was last year, under 15 Cs, I had, um, if this was hockey, I had um, half the boys were really keen um, hockey players and wanted to be in a higher team. And the other half had opted for another sport and hadn't made it onto that sport and hockey was their kind of backup. So they were sort of a bit reluctant coming to training sessions, turning up a little bit late. So I had this kind of stark dy dynamic between the two of like the, the ones who were really keen getting annoyed with the other boys for not kind of, you know, getting involved as much. And it was our final fixture. Um, I can't remember who we were playing, but a final fixture. And this particular group of boys, there were like three or four of them from the same house, had been doing a lot of five-a-side football. And um, I was like, right, guys, okay, this is this is your moment. I'm going to put you up front, you 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 four up front, and you're going to work together. And then we're going to make sure we have like a good kind of final fixture where we're all working together as a team. And it just so happened that that kind of um, transferable skills in terms of like passing to each other, um, they managed to score. We were sort of like, it was um, three nil. We were down with our last fixture. We hadn't had a great season anyway. And we managed to score three goals um, consecutively with those boys at the front. And you could hear um, the house master on the other side of the pitch could hear those boys cheering at the fact that they kind of scored. And we ended up coming, we ended up drawing with them, which is kind of like a, a good, a good result for us having had a quite a difficult season throughout. And that was just so rewarding to see the boys enjoying it to finishing on a high as well. And like the team, coming together so it's those little things that i think actually can be quite rewarding as a coach top draw five up front you know revolutionary stuff there Jess. <laughs> like tottenham under our dealers <laughs> paddy what about you mate what's, what's been your favorite experiences of coaching sport in schools so i think similarly to jess is first part of the answer i think i've got the opportunity to go on um a few cricket tours um, we went to Sri Lanka just before I left actually which was an incredible experience but I think we also 
um, went on slightly less high-profile pre-season tours to um, Guernsey one year and to Denston another year, which although I think the boys maybe moaned about slightly compared to Sri Lanka, I think just the idea of being in that kind of touring environment and going away to play sport, I think is really um, fantastic. Um, I think I've got to mention my under-16 football team that won the league in 2018 as well. That was probably my crowning moment. Um, But then also I think just any time when a team sort of pulls together, maybe slightly backs to the wall, puts in a great effort and wins a close game. Um, I think the the sort of the enjoyment, the satisfaction, the sort of the memories that those kids get from that, I think are really quite special. And I think there's probably a few examples of that I could think of, but I think it's that sort of, it's that element of sport that I love personally. And therefore, sort of when you see other people experiencing that, obviously that's really great. Paddy and Jess, you both spoke about sort of um, your best experiences being in team sports. And I'm just going to throw out an idea there somewhere. Do you think it should be compulsory for young people to play team sports, a team sport at some point? I think it would have to be... It's a difficult question because I think you can have really amazingly positive experiences in team sport. And I think we certainly, I know more of your experiences than anybody else is here but I think we would have had some fantastic amazing experiences in team sports but then also on the flip side I've been parts of teams which I probably wouldn't ever want to be a part of again but I think you probably do learn a huge amount and the friendships you build and the um, sort of relationships you build with people that you play with are things which last forever essentially Um, but whether making that compulsory is the right thing I'm not sure because I obviously have a huge love for team sport and therefore that's probably why I have so many positive experiences. Whereas if I was being made to do something, maybe I wouldn't be quite so positive about it. I don't know. I'm yes, what... Paddy... Yeah, oh, sorry, Mods. Um, I'm Paddy in a sense that I would definitely actively encourage young people to become part of, of something, part of a team where possible, mm. but not at the detriment, like Paddy was saying, that they would have a negative experience. And I suppose it's up to the coach to kind of to, to nurture that and to create foster a positive culture where where people aren't afraid to kind of to to take on a tackle or to or to pass the ball or whatever it might be for fear of say for instance from that their other teammates are better than them and might say something or that the coaches have, have high expectations and they're afraid of messing up i think um there are certain things you can do to kind of foster a positive culture uh, it's difficult i don't know whether it should be compulsory maybe maybe you 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 make sure they all have the opportunity to join a team sport and to and to have a go but i don't know about the compulsory element of it i suppose uh, i suppose I, i'm looking to i mean if i'm thinking of what a young person does at school there are a number of other facets where he could be part of a team he, he comes in the team you know a sort of team where they're set or they're two to group um, so, uh, I support Sorry, just lost you there for uh, that brief moment. Do you just want to repeat Sorry. what you said? Yeah, I'm just saying that you know, I suppose I'm looking at isolation at, at, at a young person's sporting provision, but actually, there will be opportunities across the curriculum for young people to be part of the team to play, be it in the um, 
you know, sometimes in the classroom or the tutor group. I know teachers often galvanize a sort of team um, mentality there. But I do think, you know, humans, I think that be, it's really important that young people have the opportunity to be part of teams somewhere. Uh, and like Paddy, I think most of my um, best coaching moments and best playing moments have been when I've been part of a team that's together uh, and, and that sort of galvanizing effect. So I'm just thinking out loud. It's a bit of a brain dump for me there. <laughs> It's, on, it's quite, quite interesting when you think about individual sports as well. So recently, obviously, um, with lockdown, we haven't been able to facilitate the same sort of sporting provision that we might have done had we been at school. Um, but the CRAS, uh, this, this annual run that the school take part in, a cross-country run, my tutor group, all individually, um, they're year nines, they managed to all run. I said, I said to them, I tried to galvanise them, I said, look, it's all about participation. It doesn't matter what your time is, but you'll get points no matter what. And as, as a result of that, they all ran their individual runs. They didn't have to show anyone. They could email more uh, separately with their time, etc. But due to their participation, um, Oakshot actually won the, the year nine crass, which was fantastic. So fostering a team spirit there without having to worry about messing up in front of your peers. It, it, it's everyone's, everyone's take, playing a part in it, but they're not necessarily being held accountable for, say, missing a ball or whatever it is. Guys, um, thoroughly interesting chat. And uh, on behalf of the PE specialists, I'm sure Morgs would love to say a big thank you. Um, obviously, without you guys, the games programmes that we operate don't happen. Um, so obviously, always a big thank you there. Just to finish off, we've got a couple of quick fire questions for you guys. Um, so number one, we'll start with Jess. Uh, what's your what's the best tea or the best hospitality on on your circuit? I think being hosted at Radley uh, with the uh, the food the food when we get there. Obviously, it's quite a big journey for us. It's probably our further, furthest competitor, at least uh, my level for, for rugby. It is, um, and yeah. So I'd say like the the tea there is fantastic. Paddy, same or different? Yeah, I think Radley is the easy answer. I'm also going to give a shout out to Elizabeth College on Guernsey, actually. When we went on tour there, they were phenomenal. Um, and I also, now that I'm away from Tunbridge, I also really miss the Tunbridge Saturday afternoon beer and pizza in the common room after a game. Tough, tough gig, eh? Tough gig. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the biggest mare you've had, either in the classroom or on the sports field? Uh, Jess, do you want to start us off? Having um, a team of 15 and the 15th player not turning up with a gum shield and then I'm panicking thinking, are the opposition going to be like, are they going to be, um, are they going to help us with this? Are they going to go down to 14? Are we just going to play? Are they going to be a bit annoyed that they've, they've turned up and they've got a full team and we haven't? I'm thinking we've got a number of boys who I could have asked to have come last minute. Um, yeah, so I, it's that embarrassment, I suppose, and also worry for the team. Jeff, what, what did happen? Did they uh, did they drop to fourteen? Did they play with fifteen? They did. They dropped to fourteen. Actually, yes, yeah, so we did Good. fourteen versus fourteen. Which is the right thing to do. Correct, <laughs> Paddy. What about you? What's your biggest nightmare you've had in the classroom on the sports field? Um, refereeing rugby, a house match, just after I started at Tunbridge, and just basically fundamentally misunderstanding the rule about when a game finished, um, and carrying on with scrum after scrum for about five minutes of overtime while all the boys just kind of looked at me slightly strangely um, when I definitely by the laws of the game should have blown the whistle and the housemasters yeah. pulling their hair out the housemasters maybe, maybe actually, time, I know I know uh, a lot of people are talking about stopping the clock for reset scrum so maybe maybe you're just a pioneer there. no but I was I mean but the game was carrying on and then we were sort of having another knock-on and I, I was yeah it was 
maybe it was bad basically yeah really bad <laughs> um jess if you had to put one thing into room 101 from sports or sports coaching what would it be or games or matches whatever it might be uh a serious injury a serious injury just worrying for yeah i think that would really scare me um i'd, I'd worry for the boy um or the student that would be injured and think is that my fault and how, how to handle it yeah yeah really really fair um paddy um the phrase let's give 110 percent or 120 percent or anything that's more than 100 percent, basically because you can't inaccurate brilliant and the last one then what's your funniest moment on the games field um jess do you want to start us off i was i was um, uh, refereeing a little junior house leagues match where we play sort of like sevens touch rugby and um i was getting so into it but it was really muddy and i was like come on guys like okay you know you've got to put possible down the line and I, I slipped over and the game carried on behind me and i was sort of like looking up at the sky and, and uh, uh, sitting up and i like, had to blow my whistle because i try was scored on the other side but i just remember like, sort of like finding that really humorous laughing at myself and thinking and the boys didn't notice at all they just carried on playing uh, the game. i'm sure some of them did i'm sure they're <laughs> And um, Paddy, what were you to finish, mate? What's your funniest um, Another Another rugby refereeing moment, not so much of a blooper this time, but um, we were playing against, I think it was against Eton, and I was refing the game, and um, Eton were just about to score a try, but the, as the final pass went out to the winger, he knocked the ball on. Um, so obviously I had to blow and set up a scrum, and I couldn't have the try. Um, and as sort of the scrum was setting up I was sort of still saying oh very sorry about that but I have to do that whatever else at which point one of the Eton front row looked up at me and said it's really not a problem sir it's just the laws of the game so. <laughs> <laughs> Bill I'm just reminded I'm reminded of a very uh, funny one with one of yours your contemporaries um Bobby Bobby Sharp I remember a referee in a rugby match and this, uh, he was sort of about 13, he was about six foot four, and he must have came into this ruck from about 30 yards away. And as he got to the ruck, he basically got to a walking pace and uh, asked, he said, Excuse me, <laughs> everybody to get out of the way rather than sort of clear them out aggressively, which, um, which was interesting. Coming from what? South Wales, I hadn't seen that uh, technique. Yeah, aggression <laughs> potentially wasn't in Bobby's nature, um, but he was a great, great bloke and good, good athlete as well. Go on, just, like the boys, obviously, like, they can be quite respectful, especially in rugby. And I remember I was, I was practicing some refereeing with um, Morgs' under 14 A's in my first year here. And we were setting up um, a line out. And um, Morgs was like, oh, yeah, I normally do a hand thing, say number 10, number 10. And I was like, right, okay, I've got this, right, awesome, okay, number 10, number 10. And then um, the other team goes, miss, it's the other side. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, cheers, guys, yeah, number 10, number 10. So, yeah, so um, that's great, really great money. I'm glad it was the boys that had to point out and not me. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've probably given you deaf info. <laughs> you're focusing on the, uh, on the other coaches, Morgs, you know? You're nurturing those, so that's yeah. you, Your refereeing career isn't illustrious, is it, I don't think? No, I'm one and done. I'm one and done. <laughs> that's another episode. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole episode, I reckon. That's <laughs> yeah, well, we'll save that one for the end of term, potentially. Um, guys, yeah. just want to say again, thank you so much for giving up your time. Um, really interesting to get an insight from the schoolmaster side of things. And um, as we've said, you, you guys are so important to um, games programs and, and just thank you very much and, and have a good rest of the term. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Not, not, not all heroes. <laughs> See you guys. Awesome.
Hi and welcome back to the School Sports Podcast with me, Phil Davies, and my co-host, Chris Morgan. Um, flanked by another Welshman today, um, in, in Stuart Locke, who works at MSG Tours. Um, Stuart, how, how are you doing, mate? Very well, thank you. Very uh, honoured to be invited onto this prestigious pod. Absolutely, and, and you and Morgs have got a bit of a history going back, obviously both being Welsh, but other than that, just a touring relationship, working relationship there as well? Well, we've uh, got together on a few tours in a professional context since I uh, left Dulwich College in 2014. But uh, initially, we, uh, we locked horns as under-16 coaches, Dulwich College and, uh, and Tunbridge School. Um, regrettably, as, uh, as much as it pains me to say, I think Morg's probably got the better of me, or his boys got the better of my boys, but he obviously took most of the credit. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, that's where, that's where we got together first. And then, yeah, that relationship has, uh, has blossomed. Very grateful to Morgs and, and other teachers who offered me uh, support in my, uh, in my role with MSG Tours. And, we've, yeah, we've had the pleasure of the Tunbridge boys down here on tour in the Basque region a few times. And, uh, yeah, enjoyed, enjoyed a, glass of, uh, a glass of blush and uh, putting the worlds to rights uh, uh, as best as we know it. Yeah, and, and if, we, if we haven't introduced it or mentioned the theme, we're looking at touring today. Um, one of the best perks of, of being a teacher and one of the, the best um, things a child can do at school, in my opinion. Um, Morgs, a bit of a rundown on some of the tours that you've taken in the past? Well, Phil, I'd just like to pick you up on one thing there. I think, you know, saying it, it, it is a perk, um, I suppose it is, but also it's a huge responsibility uh, and, and it's a great perk if everything goes well. Um, but but as I said, it it is a responsibility, um, and I think uh, I've been fortunate enough to go on some great tours. Uh, the Caribbean, in fact, I went on a tour to the Caribbean with you, Phil. That was a, a, a great. One of my experience. highlights of my school career. That yeah, one of the best things I did. That was uh, that was truly great great experience watching you get, watching that rig get sunburnt, um, and uh, and been on some great rugby tours to South Africa and in recent times uh, to the Basque country there with Lockie, which, uh, which is a fantastic place to go on tour. Um, and it's interesting for me, when I look at what makes a good tour, I think it is, it's going to a place or a country that has a really sort of um, passion and love and connection with the sport that you're playing. Um, I think that's the key. And I think the key, the Basque region is great for that because the, the, the people down there really love their rugby uh, and I think that's really important. I think, you know, there are some more modern destinations that I think serve a purpose as sort of pre-season camps. Um, but I think, you know, part of the experience of touring is really embedding yourself in the, in the various cultures associated with your sport. Um, and that, that's why we've had such a good time in the Basque region and because of the blush. Because of the, the absolute blush. Perfect. Um, Lockie, so former teacher at Dulwich College, um, and then found your way into the, the tour game. What's, what's your role at MSG and, and how are things going there at the moment in terms of um, COVID and touring at the moment? Well, my current role is um, I'm a director of the company. The owner of the company and, and fellow director, Mark Gardner, is MSG himself. Um, and we've got one other non-executive director who works in, in advertising, so offers us a, a different uh, viewpoint when we're, when we're making decisions at that level but really I, I run our operation our European operation which um, is quite a grand title but it's me based down here in the Basque region and I've been lucky to have a, 
some good helpers over the last couple of years uh, set up a link with the University of Bath um, with the French and Spanish department to take on a couple of third year uh, undergrads on their placement. So I, I sort of manage that. I get in touch with old, old friends, old colleagues from, um, from some of the leading schools. But other things we're really proud of because I suspect your, your listeners would possibly mostly come from an independent school, but we've done some really cool things in the state sector. We've had uh, groups from, from all over the UK, predominantly from Wales. So again, I know you're feeling outnumbered already, but Mark Gardner's another Welshman. Um, and so we, we've got a, a really, really good loyal following in, in South Wales. So as much as in the Southeast and, the, and some of the good private schools there, We've also brought a couple of really good state schools from that region, but also in, in South Wales. We've, we've, uh, we pride ourselves on being a little bit different. We're not one of the big boys in the market, but we've possibly shaken things up a little bit by just offering really good sort of customer service. So we, we know a lot of the people. The fact that I taught for a considerable amount of time, the fact that I was basically rent a guy on tour for the first couple of years, uh, and any tour that was going, I went on it. And so it was a bit of a natural stepping stone for me, especially after spending a year in Australia on teaching exchange in 2007, which was the result of a chance meeting of putting up a, um, a teacher from an Australian school in my flat in 2004. So I owe a lot to, to touring in a, in a sort of like sideways way. But uh, yeah, no, definitely. We're, we're settled down here with my family now. And uh, yeah, Dulwich, as, as you know, is a special place for me. And they've been very loyal, but also some of the other clients we've got. Lockie, do you want to take this as a bit of an opportunity to sell the Basque Country? And, and uh, I know you, you're, you, you're, you've settled down there with your, with your family, but what makes the Basque Country, in your opinion, such a great place to tour? But it basically sort of piggybacks your comments earlier about a passion and the culture and something you can't, you're not trying to create something that's false. Like the rugby is well-rooted, and uh, Phil's going to love this now, but Bayonne Rugby Club, who I coach at the under-10s, they were founded by a Welshman. Um, yeah, well, from... Surname is Davies, so there is some Welsh in me somewhere. But I'll, there you I'll go. Harry, Harry Owen Rowe. So there's a little bit of trivia there. So he's founded a chap from Penarth um, who brought, brought his flair down here. This is why Bayonne try and play in a certain style. Um, growing up... Uh, as far as rugby is concerned, obviously Biarritz were one of the biggest clubs with Serge Blanco being the, um, being the standout player in the French side in the late 80s, or mid-late 80s, early 90s. And he's just agreed just randomly to um, take over coaching the under-18s at Biarritz from next season. So if by some means we manage to get something going, it'd be awesome to, to stand on the opposite touchline to Serge Blanco. But it's, um, it's not really just the, the rugby like down here, if you go across the border, the Basque region, people think of Basque rugby, but the football on the other side, Real Sociedad, Athletic Bilbao, Eibar, Alaves are all big clubs in La Liga. But Athletic Bilbao, for any sports fan, uh, particularly a football fan, realises that they don't import anybody from outside the Basque region. So you're only allowed to play for Athletic Bilbao if you're born there or your parents are born there. So the very, fact that they managed to exist... nineties, that, eh? It's incredible. The fact that they managed to exist in the, um, in the La Liga, the only team outside of Barca and Real who've, who've never been relegated, is incredible. None of their players come from, from elsewhere. It's almost like Yorkshire cricket saying you could only play for Yorkshire if you're yeah. born within, within those kind of confines, which obviously they did for a long time, I think. 
until a 16-year-old Sachin decided he fancied dipping his toe. It's not a bad uh, overseas sign in that. Um, Lockie, obviously uh, strange times and um, touring probably has bore the brunt of, of COVID quite a lot. How, how, how are things looking from your perspective and what kind of advice and guidance might you have for someone on the other side of the table who is planning a tour um, in, in these times? Well, it is tricky. And I know that people are, are struggling a little bit. We, we back ourselves that we, we put in a lot of contingencies. Our planning was good beforehand because of the size of us as a company. And we retain good, good communication with, with clients. A lot of people have pushed their tours back a year. So we're looking forward to welcoming a good number of the groups who are due to come this year, you know, going to come next year. Um, we've managed expectations of some good schools who are due to come in, in February. Like if I if I sat here and I said, look, I know exactly what's going to happen with it, then it would it would date really badly. So no one really knows exactly what's what's coming, even for like you guys starting school back in September. But people who are planning trips, because I know as you you've rightly said, and Morgs as well, and I I echo those comments. It's some of the best parts of of your school careers. I think people are carefully planning, looking where they can go, where it's safe to go, and places places are are opening up. Not not currently, but they will do, and people will start touring again. And I think people who try and go off on their own, I know when I was at, at Dulwich, I organised a couple of trips off my own back. It's, um, it's not the same game now, and you need to make sure you're covered with insurance. So if you're stranded in another country, if the problems are, arise like that, then you, you need to make sure you've got a proper, genuine, atoll-covered uh, provider with you who will help and guide you on that. But I think... People will, will dip their toes back in the water, possibly a little bit reluctantly initially, but it'll happen again. Maybe no, not so far away, you know, because costs are going to become an implication. How people are going to afford to do that, what's going to happen with that. But I think once they start speaking to people and teachers enjoy travel and they want to travel and they want to give, give kids the best experiences of traveling, I think it's going to start again. But it's just worth starting the conversations when you know that it's safe to do so. Lockie, and uh, I think that's really interesting. I think, you know, um, one of the reasons why um, I started to look to talk to the Basque country was um, because it basically, I, th I thought, so financially, the idea of touring to South Africa every uh, two and three years was, was becoming, you know, it was becoming sort of cost prohibitive, um, you know, with, with sort of two-week tours looking at sort of um, £3,000. Um, and I also think that, um, you know, with those sort of big tours, I think lots of kids miss out. And I think we all probably feel that touring is an amazing experience. It can galvanize a side. It can help form really long-lasting relationships. Yeah, definitely. You get a really good pre-season in. Um, and, and it seemed a bit of a shame. Or it seems a bit of a shame that that happens often on a two- or three-year cycle when uh, and kids miss out. I think if we feel it's something that's really important and a really special experience for kids, then we should try to make it as affordable and accessible to as many, as many students as possible. So I think the closer to home, more regular tours um, can, can fit in quite nicely for schools, to be honest. Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't disagree at all. I think um, having younger kids travel as well, giving them a taste of touring, smaller tours, I think is really great. I think sometimes it's lovely to have a carrot at the end of your school career. Look forward to but some of the some of the best fun. I had a group of under 11s last year from Hornsby House School came out, 
played some rugby, girls played some hockey. It's fantastic experience. 40 kids aged 10 and 11 coming out, just seeing a whole new world, seeing out, out, especially because you go to a region where they play the sport that you know, but they play it in a slightly different way. I think the interesting thing is, you know, touring sort of locally younger. The interesting thing for me is there's a sense, I sometimes get a sense of it's too much too soon. You see these sort of young kids who are 10 and 11, and they've had these amazing touring experiences already where they've gone to South Africa, they've gone to Australia. And it's, I suppose it's like when you get a car. It, now I'm not a parent, but if I was a parent, my, my, my child's first car I'd make sure is, a, is an old banger. Because I think, uh, number one, that's all I'd be able to afford. But I think if you, they start off with uh, something too nice, it's where do you go from there? Um, and I think, I, I think it's interesting. Each school, I suppose, wants to have a tour that represents the culmination of that student's time at the school. And they're looking for grand things. But maybe, maybe sh people should be looking at this sort of the bigger picture a little bit more. Um, but one, Lockie, in terms of sort of practical advice, you know, prior to planning a tours, uh, what planning tours, what sort of advice would you be giving people? Uh, and I'm really interested in stuff like, you know, size of touring parties, touring with multiple teams. Do you tour with one squad or two squad and the different sort of challenges or opportunities that might present themselves with those different dynamics? I think um, the key thing is, is to do your research, you know, spend some time, talk to members of staff maybe at your school or friends you have in other schools that might have been, get a, get a wide uh, circle of people who, who will give you some honest information on it. Because like, without, without being funny, if someone comes to me and they want to tour, then I'm going to try and bring them and sell them trips that we do. But, but luckily, and I think whilst some of the trust I've built up is that they know that I can switch it under an 80 degrees and I've, and I've been on those trips. So you talk through... How many, how many kids to bring it safe? What's your staff ratios? A key thing, I think, is think of the staff that you'd like to go on tour with. There's nothing worse than going on a tour. You might be in the most fantastic destination. But if you're on a trip with people who don't set necessarily share your ethos or don't complement each other, and you don't get on with those people that well, and you just sort of pick people at random, it can really sour the tour, and the kids pick up on that. They pick on that, up on that sort of negative vibe. But I think if you're starting out and you're new to touring, start small, build up, build up. And we're taking a group of under 11, under 12s from Dulwich College down to Wales for a tour to the field centre, up in the mountains, bit of bowling, some pizza, a couple of matches, visit the Millennium Stadium as it was. Great. Fantastic. But not starting too big with, uh, with um, yeah, three weeks in New Zealand or something like that. And, and I think that's, there's two key things there for, for me, Lockie. Oh, one, one key thing that you've touched on is having somebody on the ground. I think that's really important when you're in a, in a sort of foreign country, somebody who speaks the language, somebody who knows what the deal is in terms of going to the hospitals. And, and so from a personal point of view, whenever I'm looking at planning tours, I'm, I'm, I'm comforted by the idea that there's somebody from the co company on the ground with you. You're not sort of left to your own devices. And then I think the other key thing for me, and it's real, it's real tough to find, is making sure the standard of the opposition is appropriate. Um, and, and I've been on the sort of both sides of things where we beat the South Africa on a rugby tour and we played against 34-year-old blokes with beards and got beaten up. Um, and, uh, yeah. and, and actually, 
and actually um, I've been to hockey tour to uh, Portugal where they had about uh, five players in the whole of the in the whole of Portugal and we played against those same five in every game so I think the standard of opposition is really really important it's a key component of the tour I suppose yeah, what that sidles us nicely into the next question is I, I completely agree with that and I remember uh, what Morgs was saying about the standard of opposition I remember a rugby tour to uh, South Africa we played at Otaniqua who were the equivalent of, of say a Millfield and we ended up playing their third team and my, my, my uncle had come to watch and uh, the kick had gone up and uh, called a big overs call. Overs, captain is now playing for Richmond as, as a hooker, you know, the talisman, marches it up, ends up 15 metres back and you realise, oh, oh, oh balls, <laughs> you're in for a tough one there and uh, I think we ended up losing 60 odd points to nil. But um, I suspect the South Africans are, are great at evening things up yeah, though, you know, absolutely. and... Yeah, but Lockie, on, on, on that kind of matching up and um, side of things for a tour, what would you say are your key, key essentials for a good or a great school sports tour? Well, in terms of, in terms of the fixtures, you say? Everything. What, you know, fixtures being one part. What, what, what makes, in your eyes, you know, with your, your schoolmaster's hat on and your obviously tour hat on, what makes for a great school sports tour? Well, I think... It depends what the staff member wants and listening to what that member of staff wants. If they want an intense training program and they say, we want to train and we want to play and we want to relax at the accommodation, then that's a different sort of trip. Our trips are slightly different to that. We can, we can facilitate that, but we want people to take in a little bit of, of something of their local culture because really you can go anywhere and do that. And some of the facilities that people would have at their own schools they can pretty much recreate that there if that's what they want. I think, I think sampling some of the local culture, I think playing a little bit, but not playing too much. I think sometimes, again, there's, there's staff who say, oh, I just want to play. You know, well, that's all, all well and good. But you play a match on a Monday and then you want to play again on a Wednesday. But rugby is not possible. In a sport like cricket or football, then possibly it is. But it, it needs to be, be measured, really. Playing against locals especially when it takes you out of your comfort zone and some of the lads who and girls who go to these lovely independent schools playing kids who don't look like them who don't sound like them is is a fantastic level and that's where that's the joy of sport then you know i remember as a kid in my local comprehensive where i went if we went and played a school that was was nicer than ours and it didn't take much for that to be the case it would be awesome to play on a well manicured lawn but taking you that's what part of the touring is it's taking you out of your comfort zone getting the kids to use a bit of language if if it is in a country where they, they, they speak another language, but then also having the comfort of having someone, as Morgs mentioned, that's, what, that's why I spoke about the link I have with Bath University with, with language undergrads there, so that there's that level of support there. But I think play, playing, training, doing some cultural activities, stepping out of your comfort zone, doing some, giving something back is great. We set up a link with a Spanish school in San Sebastian, and we had a sports afternoon where they played some table tennis and volleyball and exchange, exchange some really, really sort of good language skills. And that's, that's something I try and bring in. And we had a school actually do some billeting out here. Um, billeting something that's died in sport because of the red tape people need to jump through, but actually was possible out here. And the, and the experience that the Caldicott boys, the prep school boys had out here last year was fantastic. Same with families in pairs. I think that's something that teachers would worry about is stay, children staying on their own. But yeah, we billeted the kids in pairs, 30 plus kids, 
and it's a fantastically worthwhile experience. I think filleting is something that really, if we can get it right, is something that still has a place. It, it is a shame because it has, it has, as you said, kind of died out. And I remember having some great experiences of being shown the local sites in South Africa by a side in Cape Town, and, and they hosted us very well, should we say, and, and made sure we were on top form for uh, our match the next day, which uh, is a one of my one of my favourites on the 2004 Dulwich trip to Australia. We stopped in Perth one of, after we'd been in Singapore, and one of the lads was billeted uh, in Western Australia, but arrived to school in a helicopter because <laughs> because they were so far away. It's Trinity Trinity School in Perth, and it's fantastic. Someone was asking where the lad was, and then he arrived by helicopter. Uh, so yeah, I think he's 15, first time outside of the UK, and he said the lad he was billeting with had twin sisters who were, who were two years older as well, I think, so, yeah. Before the watershed, Lucky, before the watershed. Um, the, 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 the interesting thing is, I, I you know, couldn't agree more, the, the most immersive experience you can have is when you're billeted, and it's the best way to, uh, to really experience a culture. And actually, it's a real opportunity to make really long-lasting friendships that you don't have in when you play a one-off game. You know, you might stay around after the match for a burger for half an hour. You don't really get to know know the opposition. And and um, so, where are we in terms of building? Are 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 people still looking for opportunities to do it? Um, I, I know there is a lot of red tape around it. Um, people are reluctant because they're scared, and some senior management at school will say no straight away because of, of the element of risk involved. But there are ways to do it and, and not trying to bend the rules in any way. But there are ways of doing it. Just ask, ask the senior staff at school. This is something we want to look into. And the School Travel Forum, which are a fantastic enterprise, and particularly recently with all discussions going back at sort of governmental levels, the, um, the School Travel Forum have looked into this and compiled relevant forms that need to be filled in and signed and checked etc i think it's easier for schools traveling from the uk elsewhere to be billeted i think yeah. for schools in the uk to billet from my understanding that's that's a very very tricky thing because it needs to check every person who might be in that house or spending time in that house and i'd say it's quite an intrusive thing to ask ask people to fill in forms and and declaring things on forms that maybe people wouldn't want to, uh, to, to be declaring. So yeah, it's, it's possible, but it does require just some careful planning and the right questions to be asked. But if it died completely, I think people lose a hell of a lot from tours. And also a point to make on that is that the costs can be brought down. So if we want to be inclusive and make sure people have opportunities, the costs of tours are prohibitive. If you, everyone's staying in a, Top end hotel, etc. Because again, that's not really what I what I perceive to be to be the, the main thing for school touring. Definitely, lock a couple of um, really interesting nuggets of information there, and actually bring us quite nicely onto the next question. What kind of mistakes do you think, or what kind of mistakes do you see most evident from people who are organising tours? I think it's um, it's. Got so, yeah, um, I think believing that everything is going to be ridiculously prescriptive and that you can't think on your feet or think off the, off the cuff a little bit. And people who want to plan to the nth degree, having a plan 
having a skeleton plan, having an idea of what you want to do is really important. But being flexible and being able to move, I think, is, 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 is vital. I think when you get there, expecting it to be like back home and expecting to try and recreate what you had in your home environment, it just takes you into the, one of the greatest touring speeches of all time, the Jim Telfer 97 Lions speech. You know, it's, it's exactly that mentality, the Brits abroad. You know, and, and all of us here, I suspect, would, would concur. You know, that's not why we go abroad. That's not why we tour with the kids in our charge. That's definitely not what we want. Um, choosing the kids you take on tour, is, you need to be very careful. Um, if children have um, food allergies, and particularly strong food allergies, it's important to make sure you've got all that information. Yeah, your risk assessment planning, whilst it can be tedious, as a lot of people would say, it's absolutely essential to make sure you've got that in place. But I think believing something is going to be as it is back home is, is a reason to stay at home and not organise tours. Stepping out of the comfort zone, doing things that are a bit different and, and leading a group of people on that. And then as Borg said, if you've got a guy on the ground or a girl on the ground looking after you and helping you, at least you've got your point of reference there. So leave the tea bags and the tin of beans at home. Is, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I remember Wales played in Albania and I remember there was a problem. They didn't have enough baked beans for a football match years ago, I think. I'm not sure if there was any Heinz beans in Tirana or whatever. <laughs> Who knows? Look, you wouldn't be able to get your tomato ketchup on the plane these days, though, would you? <laughs> I remember going to... Yeah, I remember going to Singapore via... Korea because it was a cheaper flight I had to be shown how to use the food on Korean airways by the lady sat next to me but enjoying that as part of the experience and I would just they said what do I do with, with this and she showed me and I just thought it's awesome I just I just love that I love that I love the fact that someone would take the time to explain that and that's that's why again that the bulletin's great you know those cultures the dining cultures with certain families a brilliant thing or even eating all together with your opposition after the game it's not it's not as big a culture as I'd like it to be down here, but definitely something to, to break bread with, with your opposition is, is, a, is a brilliant thing. Um, Lockie, experience of touring from a teacher's point of view and, and, and running and organising tours, um, good opportunity for some stories. What's the biggest kind of nightmare you've seen either from a, a teaching perspective or kind of a, a tour manager perspective? Well, I'll speak from my own experience because it makes me look like a bit of a clown. And uh, is I brought a group of footballers under 15s to the Basque region in 2004, which started my love affair with the region. And um, I asked the one Spanish lad we had with us who was from Bilbao and part of the reason we came. I said, can you just check this all right to park the minibus here? Yeah, no problem. Parking on the hill there. Yeah, super. So we parked on the hill. Uh, all went away. Later on, we're walking up the hill and I think, geez, we've gone a long way up this hill. We were parked definitely not this high up. And I was like, what's, what's that on that parking meter there? So a bit of old Del Boy style, someone had put something on the parking thing. Parking was suspended because they were doing the facade on a hotel. So our minibus had been towed away. So all the kids are then saying, come on, Sue, how the hell did you get on me? You wait till my dad hears about this. You've got our minibus towed away. The Spanish lad who was with us, he said, he said, well, you usually can park there. I said, well, he didn't even actually check. So going to my Spanish is, is, is better now, but it was very limited then. 
and I trying to trying to get to the pound or trying to get to where the the van had been towed to was a nightmare and then that night we parked the van in an underground car park that someone recommended we had the radios nicked from it so yeah <laughs> it wasn't the most the most auspicious start I was still in my mid-20s at the time thinking I'm gone so yeah that was a bit of a nightmare and then secondly and Morgs might might remember this in my very early days I took that a group of lads and under 13s to to Wales on a tour and we played against a team that give us an absolute Tonkin um, and they had a player who was practicing kicks from the halfway line before the game and he I thought he was just one of the older kids who was either refereeing or something but then he turned up at outside centre scored seven tries against us and after the game I spoke to him and then I contacted his parents to see if he what he was doing with his schooling and his teacher took that as an opportunity to sell the story to the papers and say that I was trying to poach uh, poach his play and he was doing when he was in when England won the World Cup so it was England versus Wales. It was private schools versus Welsh state school prodigy. Um, the headline in the Times was, fancy coming to London to be a tough, no thanks, sales, says Welsh prodigy. <laughs> Good on him. And I was on a train a couple of weeks later with a, with a guy coming back from a sevens tournament. And he said, gee, did you see that story about that, that young lad from your school? What an idiot. Contacted that school in Wales. And I just pointed at myself and he went, yeah. It's you, isn't it? I was like, yeah, sorry, it was me. Yeah. Oh, two belters there. And the Spanish for where is the minibus is what? <laughs> Donde es el autobús? <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. It still didn't get it back. It cost me 300 euros out of my own pocket. I was trying to, I was trying to pay him for setas, but they were having none of it. My dad had chucked a couple in my suitcase. You're off to Spain, see if you can get rid of these. <laughs> good, uh, good on you, good on you. Lockie, we, we finish off most weeks um, with our with our quick far round and um, got a, a teaching and touring blend with you here. Um, so first, going back to your teaching days, where was the best hospitality and the best tea? For me personally, I, I don't think we'd ever we've ever had a better trip than the first one I went on to Australia in 2004 and being looked after in in Sydney at at Newington College where I then went went to and taught in 2007. Unbelievable hospitality and just so so well looked after. Then went back there to watch um, watch the back to Newington day as they called and they were playing St. Joseph's from Hunters Hill and 14-year-old Kirtley Beale was playing for the first 15 that day. It was, uh, it was incredible. And we looked after all day, couldn't, couldn't do enough. And for someone who values hosting enormously, even a little bit goes a long way. It was uh, like some schools have got the means to put on a lot of spread, but it's mostly to do with the warmth of the welcome. So I think it was, uh, yeah, that, that day in the sunshine there, that's what sold it for me to try and wangle her teaching exchange out there so yeah definitely one of the best welcomes I ever had was it top draw top draw um other than the Basque region where's your favorite touring destination the Basque region is very good as we mentioned um so outside of that I think one of the few of the trips I've been on South Africa is a wonderful place to tour the danger with South Africa is possibly it's reached saturation point. You go on a tour and you bump into shed loads of other groups. So 
with MSG, we're far more creative. So we're we're looking, we're really hoping the Lions runs as as is scheduled next year, and we're taking in Uppingham out there, and we're doing some stuff in Eswatini in and formerly known as Swaziland. So doing some things which are off the beaten track and away from the sort of the paths well trodden, I think is a key thing. But yeah, South Africa, when if you've never been there and you go there for the first time, very luckily I went I went as a boy in '97 for the back end of the Lions Lions trip playing for a um, a hastily got together Wales colleges team. So we're boys who Morgs would know from Gorsainen and from Neath College and, and the rest. But if there was a lesson who not to take on tour, a joint football, netball and rugby trip with a group of group of Welsh college students was possibly not the best idea. But we did manage to get into the Lions changing room before the last test and they cut all their sleeves off. So I got a couple of um, memento sleeves back home. But yeah, the atmosphere that day in Ellis Park was, was yeah, something else. I've, I've never experienced anything quite as good since, really. Fair play. Morgs, quickly, favourite touring destination? Yeah, oh, just um, kind of, I'd sit on the fence and say anywhere where the sport is, is sort of synonymous with the culture. So um, rugby in the Basque region, uh, rugby tour to South Africa, and cricket tour to Barbados. Um, you know, where, where, where basically you feel everybody is interested in who you are, who you're playing, um, those countries that kind of live and breathe the sport for me. So... Um, yeah, that, that's that's my top three. Basque and actually South Wales. I think you can get that same experience in South Wales. You know, a country that lives and breathes uh, rugby. Uh, the blush isn't as good. Lockie, last one then. Uh, teaching question here. What what's your funniest moment as a coach on the on the sports field? Funniest moment I think was probably again at my own expense. So to not ridicule. Cool others was um, we had 13 kids playing year three cricket and just starting to learn to play the game. Obviously, we were playing some batting pairs, 13, we were one short. And so, Chiaro Hilton is a lovely lad, fantastic all rounder in terms of music and sport. And his cricket wasn't bad, he became good. He didn't have a partner. I said, I'll be his partner. And so, I was at the non strikers end. He, he got some bat on ball. So we were playing nip cat run. So off, off I set for a quick, um, quickish single, and I pulled my calf, and it banged. The noise of my calf was awful. I was collapsed. So I had about the other thirteen kids from Dulwich Year Three. All it was like Gulliver's Travels, as I was lying on the floor with all these kids on top of me, asking me what I'd done, and I had to hobble. I had to mm. then come back out and finish these lessons because obviously I couldn't leave a group of seven year or eight year olds. Uh, loose on the playing fields and uh, yeah so I, I got str- I got stretched off which was a bit embarrassing and and got run out obviously go and fetch the nurse lads go 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 <laughs> Bucky, I feel uh, I feel we can't go until you tell us your story that you shared about Arthur Whitty I feel oh, yeah, a so loss in the uh, in the early discussions we were we were having before we come on to this well-polished pod was that uh I mentioned that we looked after Merchant Taylor's Crosby. So obviously Phil working at Merchant Taylor's down south in Northwood. We, um, Merchant Taylor's Crosby toured Barcelona with us in February. Uh, son of the master in charge of the football there. Works with me down here now. And uh, yeah, we, uh, 
we managed to get a gold standard tour of, of Barcelona and everything at the ground, the training ground, everything. And a man in a very expensive blazer with gold buttons came out and welcomed us with open arms because unbeknownst to many, merchant tailors who put their colours are navy and uh, dark red, maroon. They, uh, they are often said to be the colours of Barcelona because of the score and because of the early president, Arthur Whitty who uh, I think he might have even played there a little bit as well with his brother, the early president in the early, early 1900s. Um, so, yeah, quite, quite impressive. The early 20th century, sorry, not that long ago. Lockie, it's been, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And hopefully um, there's been some sort of really uh, pearls of wisdom there for people to take on board when they're planning their tours. Uh, uh, and also some, uh, some gems of trivia that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of pub quizzes going on online, hasn't there? So hopefully it's been informative on that front too. Absolutely, Lockie. Thanks. Yeah, good to chat to you all week, mate. Thanks, thanks so much for popping on and, and good luck. And I hope business picks up and, uh, and the Lions tour goes ahead next year, mate, and you'll enjoy that. So thanks for the opportunity. I never need too many invitations to, to, to relay a few, a few tales of yesteryear. So it's amazing what comes back into your head when you're prompted and uh, obviously staring at a screen as, we, as we're doing here. But yeah, no, it's, uh, it's good to chat. And then, yeah, thanks for, thanks for calling on me to give you the opportunity. Appreciate it. Cheers, Lucky. Cheers. Hi, my name's Phil Davies and you'll also be listening to Chris Morgan on the School Sports Podcast. The views displayed in today's episode are our own views and not representative of the schools that we work at. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast.